Welcome to this Summer Sabbath Sunday here at First Presbyterian Church. I'm Danny. And I'm Connie. Let us worship God in spirit and in truth. Our first lesson today is taken from Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you, so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such one be, with, be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven." For where two of you are gathered in my name, I am there among them. This is the word of the Lord. Our second lesson is taken from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We are continuing on both in Matthew and Romans as we have the last several weeks. We are in Romans 13, verses 8 through 14. That is 13, 8 through 14. Listen, owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore... Love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. The night is far gone and the day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us live honorably as in the day not in reveling, drunkenness, not in debauchery or licentiousness, not in quarreling, in jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> So uh, a man wrote a description of his former pastor. He was a Baptist pastor. His name was Dr. Harry Rourke. Says he was a real character. He smoked for one thing, and he let the deacons know when he arrived from the very beginning that he had no intention of quitting. He loved to play a domino game called 42. He enjoyed winning so much that allegedly he even cheated now and again. What I most enjoyed about Dr. Rourke is that he had a horse named Pastoral Calls, which he kept at a church member's ranch southeast of town. 
If you call the church office on Wednesday afternoons, his secretary, Miss Louise Greer, would politely let you know that Dr. Rourke was not in. He was out on pastoral calls. The church members knew exactly what that meant. He had other quirks and idiosyncrasies. One of them had to do with his preaching. He seemed to know at times when his congregation was not always paying close attention to him each Sunday. So when he eventually got to the point of his sermon, he would always preface it by asking the question, are you listening? Are you listening? That was their cue and they knew it. He would then wait just long enough for them to wake up or stop making out their grocery lists or stop drawing in their bulletins or passing notes to their friends and listen. The question, are you listening, was a time to be alert and pay attention. And it is one of Paul's messages to us today. Are we listening? Are we awake? So this Romans passage, Paul's letter to the church in Rome, the context of this is that Rome really at this time is the Gentile capital, the hub, meaning non-Jews, non-Christians, but there's a little church there for which Paul writes this letter that we know as the book of Romans. So they're dealing with Jews and Gentiles. How does this whole new Christianity thing work? And they're dealing with law and spirit and law versus the outrageous claims about this risen Messiah. And it makes sense. Our, our Jewish friends are steeped in the law. The Torah, the first five books, are all about the law. Moses, we attribute to that, the giving of the law. And so as if you, that is your history, and even if you're getting ready to then follow Christ, you need to think, well, how, how big a role does the law play? How much do, is not really important to us anymore moving forward? And so that was a lot of the conversation Paul was trying to help them with, with their theology. Jews and Gentiles all coming on this new Christian journey. And then also, what about the law and the fulfillment of it or not? And so into this, the second part of this, he talks about waking from sleep. And this passage is used in Advent many times, uh, in our lectionary cycle, it won't be this year, which is why we're doing it now, but fits into Advent with that time that says, get ready, God is coming incarnate in the Christ child. All of those things that we said from every prophet, priest, and king, all of the prophecies, all that we've been waiting for in the coming Messiah is coming. Be alert, be awake, get ready. And in this context, it's, not that similar. Paul is talking and assuming that Christ will be back sometime in the near future. And just like we anticipate the coming of the Christ child every Advent before Christmas, Paul is saying we need to be anticipating the second coming of Christ because we do not know when he'll be back. So you know what time it is, Paul says. And it's not in the middle of the sermon, looking at your watch. 
It's a bigger picture time. The night is ending. We're coming to the dawn, the dawn symbolizing the time when Christ will come back again. Wake up and be ready. Lay aside the works of darkness. Put on the armor of light. Be honorable and put on Christ. So that second part is all about being alert, being ready, making sure that we're listening and preparing. The first part, great, focuses on loving one another, loving your neighbor as yourself. Thanks, preacher. Could have stayed home for that. I hear that about every Sunday, thanks. Well, if it wasn't all over the Bible, I wouldn't have to talk about it all the time. Or if we did it, I could stop having to talk about it. So he talks about the law, the commandments. Again, in this struggle with how important is the law moving forward. Oh, no one to anything except to love one another. That fulfills the law right there. Commandments, all of it, hangs on the word love your neighbor and then adds as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So let's talk about that love. What does that look like for us to say we love our neighbor as ourselves? I love myself a lot. I'm sure you do too. I hope you do in a positive, healthy way. How is it Jesus just set the bar here that Paul lifts up and says, well, your goal is to love others. Well, okay, if, if it just remains that goal out there, we may really never realize any of that. So how do we break that down a little bit? I'm going to talk about objective versus subjective love. Now, to make sure our definitions are clear, objectivity is not influenced by personal feelings or opinions. If something is objective, it is more scientific. The realm of science ideally is more objective. You're observing things, you're proving things, you're seeing things. And the next step is subjective. Whereas objective was not influenced by personal feelings or opinions, subjectivity is based and influenced on personal feelings, tastes, and opinions. Now, and then both of these are included in God's love for the world. For example, God objectively loves the world that God created. That is a big category. God loves all of God's children. That is objective. That is without feelings. That is a simple observable fact for God. God loves humankind and God's creation. That's objective. Kind of bigger picture. It's the subjective part of God's love would then be to say that God loves you, God loves me, and God loves God's creation intimately. Because God seeks to know us and therefore, it's a subjective relationship. 
Now, on one level, yes, God loves us objectively, loves creation, or a part of all God's creation, all God's people. We're all part of God's family. That's objective, but still showing love. And again, the subjective part is that God knows and seeks each one of us in a personal and intimate way. And I believe that step from just well-wishing and loving on kind of a, I'll say an entry level of love is objectivity. But what Paul is sending us to is subjectivity. How do we get there? How do we love others as ourselves? Because the first time he just says, love one another. Second time, as yourselves. That is objective versus subjective as I am making the argument. Well, let's think a little bit. In our prayers of the people, which I always knew growing up as the big long prayer, after the sermon, where we're praying for everybody. And it's right that we do that. But many times, because we are seeking to cast a wide net, it is kind of objective categories. We pray for countries involved with war. We pray for those who are sick. We pray for all schools and institutions. We pray for governments. We pray, again, for these bigger categories. And, and I'm not saying that's wrong. That's where we start. But to get us from objective to subjective, as I believe Paul and Christ are calling us to do, you take one of those categories and then you think, how do I get to know somebody in that category? Because then it's not an objective just throwing your prayer out there because you know people need it, and they do, and don't stop doing that. Again, that's the first step into prayer. But to get to love our neighbor as ourselves means that we have people in mind. If we pray for the victims of the hurricane last week, that is great and we need to do that. But if we know somebody who was there, then we can pray for them by name. Or even better, we can call them and say, hey, I was just praying for you. How are you doing? How are your people? What happened down there? Are you okay? That moves it from objective to subjective. In our heated political environment, Democrats, Republicans. If we pray for those groups, because if, the, if they disagree with us, then of course we know they're wrong. It would be a big step towards subjectivity if we were to say, you know what, I just, I just don't know why somebody would vote for Trump, for Pence, for Biden, for Harris. America is at stake on either side, depending on who you listen to and which side you are on. The biggest, most catastrophic election shaping up in years, in decades, maybe in the history of the world. 
and we're so polarized. But what if we were to pray for this process or pray for somebody who believes different than us and then we were to call somebody and say, hey, you know, we go to church together, I respect you. I also know that you might be voting for that other person. Would you have a cup of coffee with me so we could talk about it? And our, our tendency is to want to just stick our heads in the sand and ride it out. We just get through November, just get through November. But there are bigger issues at stake. If we can't ever disagree with people and have it be okay, then we are doomed as a people, certainly as a body of Christ. God made us all different and gave us different contexts and different experiences, different abilities to understand and to share and to be and our gifts in ministry. And because of that, it is God's plan that we would have differences. But the only way those differences keep from destroying us is if we take the time to make things to move things from objective to subjective and to stand out there and say, you know what, I just, I, I, I don't understand to the point where I, I have to talk to somebody. How can you vote for whoever? And you wouldn't say it that way. Say, tell me why, or would you share with me why you might be leaning that way? And that person could share, and even if you don't agree with them, at least you know they're not out to destroy America by their vote. That they have thoughts, they have concerns that they think are the best for the country, even if they're different. Then you have gained a friend, and you have gained an ally, and you have gained respect and built relationship in a way that furthers the kingdom. I know in the church world, we pray for other denominations, we pray for other churches, that's an objective category, and that's right and great that we do that. But I could very easily pick up the phone, call a, another pastor, United Methodist pastor in town, and say, hey, I know y'all are having some real difficult conversations. We had some of these same conversations four, five, six, seven years ago. We went through that, and I want you to know that I'm, I'm here praying for you because I know what it's like. I know where you are. And if I can be helpful to you in any way, you let me know. I can do that as a pastor. That moves it from objective to subjective. And that, friends, is our goal. And often those people that we pray for, it's easier to keep them at arm's length simply because then we don't have to do anything different. And it's not just these big world events, it's your neighbor who has a poker game every Friday night and they park in front of your yard every time and they step on your daisies. How do you love that guy as a brother in Christ? Or the lady that says something about you to other people, uh-oh, how do you love her as a sister in Christ? And you could go home and pray that all obnoxious neighbors would cease their obnoxiousness and be respectful of those around. That's an entry. Or 
You could go and try and talk to him or her, whatever the situation is. Which takes us to the second part, our Matthew conversation for today, which also is amazing. So Paul's telling us we need to move from just love to object uh, uh, to love as loving others as we love ourselves. That is from objective to subjective. In Matthew, Jesus is telling us that those people that we have difficult with who or who have done us harm, we need to bring back into the fold. Listen again. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point it out. Point out the fault when the two of you are alone. And if that member listens, you have regained that one. So it's fascinating. All the way through this conversation, Jesus is telling us that you as the victim, if someone has wronged you, aren't what's most important. It's hard for us to hear. I've been wronged. Somebody done me wrong. He said something. She did something. She took credit for my work at the office. She's, or he is spreading rumors about me or just something nasty on Facebook or Instagram or something of the like. There's a lot of nasty out there one time or another. We, we all are done wrong. And Jesus is saying, you know what? It is so important to the family of faith that you reconcile, that you need to go after him. Yes, as the victim of someone who has been done wrong. And again, that's hard for us to hear and hard for us to follow. And Jesus gives us several steps. Go and talk to that person and see if he can work it out. If so, you've got him back. You've got a brother or a sister in Christ. Things are okay. If that person won't listen, well, then get a few other people from the church, maybe some elders, maybe sit down with your pastor, educator, youth worker, anybody that you might respect at the church and have some objective voices. And then y'all sit down again and see if you can work through it. Then you take it to the church, if that doesn't work, to the Christian fellowship. Make it known to the family. And then if that doesn't work, well, you've done what you could at this moment. You may need to let it go. But not write it off. And Jesus also isn't saying you're not important because you were someone did something against you. Jesus is not taking away the validity of that hard or hurt, but rather saying, and this is within the context of a community of faith, we can say our church to make it easy. If two people have an argument within the church, depending on the size of the church, does it have the power to disrupt the family? Of course it does. Think in your own family that possibly you grew up with, if you had siblings or you're a parent now and you've got kids and there's an issue between the two, two of the siblings, 
Is that going to disrupt the house? Depends. But if they keep fighting and they're not listening, then yes, it spills out into everything else and makes it harder to live in that environment. You go to a family reunion, say it's 25 or less. If there are issues, severe issues between two people in there, is it going to affect the rest of that gathering? Pretty sure it will. Because either you have to step on eggshells knowing that they can't be in the same place because they don't agree on something, or they're just going to continue to fight and be negative in the midst of the rest of that meaning celebration. It's the same thing at church. When we disagree with one another, and it's not just disagree, it's a fault. If it's to the point of somebody hurting someone else, it's we're way beyond just sharing different views, which I hope we're comfortable to do regularly. But of course, it can spill over into the life of the community, and that's what Christ is seeking to keep from happening. It is so important because it becomes a theological matter when we are both a part of the same church or community of faith. It's not just two people who are at odds with each other. It becomes a theological matter because you are here through Christ. So our job becomes, we have to stand up, we have to go, and you're not, as the person who was hurt, you're not letting it go. This isn't coming together to say all is forgiven. You're confronting that person with what they did to you that was hurtful or harmful in your eyes. So you are just bringing it up instead of letting it go underground, which it so often does, and then explodes later sometime down the road in a much more unhealthy way and can be detrimental to the church family moving forward. And that also is moving from objective to subjective. Lord, we pray against everybody who steals my work at the office and takes credit for it themselves, that they would know how wrong and morally deficient they are. That's the objective part. Subjective part is, Jim, can, I, can we have a cup of coffee? I'd, I'd just like to sit down with you. And sometimes depending on the circumstances, that's not possible and you can't do that. But the majority of time, you can. You want to be safe, but at the same time, step out of your comfort zone. If we say we love all people, the temptation, and that's great, and we should, but the temptation then is not to really do much for any of them. But if we say, I love all people and I'm going to show it. Ask yourselves, who, when was the last time you stepped outside of your comfort zone to show your love for someone else? Somebody that's different than you are. Somebody that might has, have a different history. And that might include sitting down with somebody with whom you don't understand politics. Maybe if you are African American, it's sitting down with a white person and saying, tell me where you are on this. Or a white person saying to an African-American friend, hey, can we, can we talk about this? That moves from objective to subjective. For us to really believe that we love all, 
It's going to show by the way that we live. Not the categories that we pray, although again, that's the right place to start. It's then going to be to move it to subjective. We pray for all college students. Hmm, what college students do I know in my church that I could call and just check in on and say how you're doing? That's loving others like yourself. That's sharing your empathy. That's wanting to get to know people and people with whom you have investment. So friends, go forward today and know that you are being called to love one another as yourself. And that's not just a lofty goal that we hear every Sunday. Break it down from objective to subjective. How do you get there and start to show that or continue to show that in your life. And know that when others have grievances against you, even if they are completely wrong or they have hurt you, it is our job to go to them and try to reconcile, especially within the Christian community. Because again, it becomes a theological matter and not just a disagreement. Lofty callings on this September afternoon. So be inspired, think ahead to your life about where we are going. Let Matthew, Paul, and Jesus guide us. There's so much great work to be a part of. Hallelujah. Amen.